Once again, it is Black Clock Audio Tales. We are in our final week of Edgar Allan Poe in the final week of January. Ooh. Check out our schedule in the show notes to find out what next month will be for Black Clock Audio Tales and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Also check out Articulate Warbling with Zach Ferguson and also Dave's Corner of the Universe and Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, which will be coming out by the end of this month. So, hey, check out that, wait for that, look for that. Here we go, Edgar Allan Poe, Volume 5 of Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven. This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm, don't get cold. Bunny slippers, dino sound slippers, s'more slippers, sports slippers, sci-fi, fantasy, cute critters, all kinds of cool stuff. And don't forget about found item clothing, cool shirts from your favorite cult films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You want to dress like Booger? You want to dress like Styles from Teen Wolf and wear a t-shirt that says, what are you looking at? Dino's? You can do that. Found item clothing. And remember, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and pgttcm.com. Look for us, pgttcm.com, Black Clock Audio Tales, and here you go with Edgar Allan Poe. All right, let's start. Recording by Simon Smoke and Kevin Davidson. Bonbon by Edgar Allan Poe. Bonbon. Dans un bon vin, meuble mon estomac. Je suis plus savant que Balchac, plus sage que Pibrac. Mon bras seul fait sans l'attaque de la nation cosséaque, la métroite au sac de Charon. Je passe roi le lac, en dormant dans son bac, je roi au fier et hac, sans que mon cœur fitique ni tac, pressante du tabac. French Vaudeville That Pierre Bonbon was a restaurateur of uncommon qualifications. No man who, during the reign of frequented the little café in the cul de sac, le fèvre at Rouen, will I imagine feel himself at liberty to dispute. That Pierre Bonbon was, in an equal degree, skilled in the philosophy of that period, is, I presume, still more especially undeniable. His patte à la fois were beyond doubt immaculate, but what pen can do justice to his essay sur la nature? his thoughts sur l'âme, his observations sur l'esprit. If his armlets, if his fricando were inestimable, what littérateur of that day would not have given twice as much for an idée de bonbon as for all the trace of idée of all the rest of the savants? 
Bonbon had ransacked libraries which no other man had ransacked, had more than any other would have entertained a notion of reading, had understood more than any other would have conceived the possibility of understanding, and although while he flourished there were not wanting some authors at Rouen to assert that his dicta evinced neither the purity of the academy nor the debt of the lyceum. Although, mark me, his doctrines were by no means very generally comprehended, still it did not follow that they were difficult of comprehension. It was, I think, on account of their self-evidency that many persons were led to consider them abstruse. It is to Bonbon, but let this go no farther, it is to Bonbon that Kant himself is mainly indebted for his metaphysics. The former was indeed not a Platonist, nor, strictly speaking, an Aristotelian, nor did he, like the modern Leibniz, waste those precious hours which might be employed in the invention of a fricassee or fatili crado, the analysis of a sensation in frivolous attempts at reconciling the obstinate oils and waters of ethical discussion. Not at all. Bonbon was ionic. Bonbon was equally italic. He reasoned a priori. He reasoned also a posteriori. His ideas were innate or otherwise. He believed in George of Trebizond. He believed in Bossarion. Brackets. Bessarion. Bonbon was emphatically a Bonbonist. I have spoken of the philosopher in his capacity of restaurateur. I would not, however, have any friend of mine imagine that in fulfilling his hereditary duties in that line, our hero wanted a proper estimation of their dignity and importance. Far from it. It was impossible to say in which branch of his profession he took the greater pride. In his opinion, the powers of the intellect held intimate connection with the capabilities of the stomach. I am not sure, indeed, that he greatly disagreed with the Chinese, who held that the soul lies in the abdomen. The Greeks, at all events, were right, he thought, who employed the same word for the mind and the diaphragm. Note 1. M.D. By this I do not mean to insinuate a charge of gluttony, or indeed any other serious charge to the prejudice of the metaphysician. If Pierre Bonbon had his failings, and what great man has not a thousand, if Pierre Bonbon, I say, had his failings, they were failings of very little importance. Faults, indeed, which, in other tempers, have often been looked upon rather in the light of virtues. As regards one of these foibles, I should not even have mentioned it in this history, but for the remarkable prominency, the extreme alto relievo, in which it jutted out from the plane of his general disposition. He could never let slip an opportunity of making a bargain. Not that he was avaricious, no. It was by no means necessary to the satisfaction of the philosopher that the bargain should be to his own proper advantage. Provided a trade could be effected, a trade of any kind, upon any terms or under any circumstances. A triumphant smile was seen for many days thereafter to enlighten his countenance, and a knowing wink of the eye to give evidence of his sagacity. 
At any epoch, it would not be very wonderful if a humour so peculiar as the one I have just mentioned should elicit attention and remark. At the epoch of our narrative, had this peculiarity not attract observation, there would have been room for wonder indeed. It was soon reported that upon all occasions of the kind, the smile of Bonbon was wont to differ widely from the downright grin with which he would laugh at his own jokes, or welcome an acquaintance. Hints were thrown out of an exciting nature, stories were told of perilous bargains made in a hurry, and repented of at leisure and instances were adduced of unaccountable capacities, vague longings and unnatural inclinations implanted by the author of all evil for wise purposes of his own. The philosopher had other weaknesses, but they are scarcely worthy our serious examination. For example, there are few men of extraordinary profundity who are found wanting in an inclination for the bottle. Whether this inclination be an exciting cause, or rather a valid proof of such profundity, it is a nice thing to say. Bonbon, as far as I can learn, did not think the subject adapted to minute investigation. Nor do I. Yet, in the indulgence of a propensity so truly classical, it is not to be supposed that the restaurateur would lose sight of the intuitive discrimination which was wont to characterize, at one and the same time, his essays and his amulets. In his seclusions the vin de Bourgogne had its allotted hour, and there were appropriate moments for the Côte du Rhône which in Sotene was to Medoc what Catullus was to Homer. He would sport with a syllogism in sipping Saint-Péret, but unravel an argument over Claude de Vougeot, and upset a theory in a torrent of Chabertin. Well, had it been if the same quick sense of propriety had attended him in the peddling propensity to which I have formerly alluded, but this was by no means the case. Indeed, to say the truth, that trait of mind in the philosophic bonbon did begin at length to assume a character of strange intensity and mysticism, and appeared deeply tinctured with the diablerie of his favourite German studies. To enter the little café in the cul-de-sac Lefebvre was at the period of our tale to enter the sanctum of a man of genius. Bonbon was a man of genius. There was not a sous-cuisinière in Rouen who could not have told you that Bonbon was a man of genius. His very cat knew it and forbore to whisk her tail in the presence of the man of genius. His large water-dog was acquainted with the fact and, upon the approach of his master, betrayed his sense of inferiority by a sanctity of deportment, a debasement of the ears and a dropping of the lower jaw, not altogether unworthy of a dog. It is, however, true that much of this habitual respect might have been attributed to the personal appearance of the metaphysician. A distinguished exterior will uh, I am constrained to say, have its way even with a beast, and I am willing to allow much in the outward man of the restaurateur calculated to impress the imagination of the quadruped. 
There is a peculiar majesty about the atmosphere of the little grates, if I may be permitted so equivocal an expression, which mere physical bulk alone will be found at all times inefficient in creating. If, however, Bonbon was barely three feet in height, and if his head was diminutively small, still it was impossible to behold the rotundity of his stomach without a sense of magnificence nearly bordering upon the sublime. In its size, both dogs and men must have seen a type of his acquirements. In its immensity, a fitting habitation for his immortal soul. I might here, if it so pleased me, dilate upon the matter of habiliment and other mere circumstances of the external metaphysician. I might hint that the hair of our hero was worn short, combed smoothly over his forehead, and surmounted by a conical-shaped white flannel cap and tassels. That his pea-green jerkin was not after the fashion of those worn by the common class of restaurateurs at that day, that the sleeves were something fuller than the reigning costume permitted, that the cuffs were turned up, not as usual in that barbarous period, with cloth of the same quality and colour as the garment, but faced in a more fanciful manner with the party-coloured velvet of Genoa that his slippers were of a bright purple curiously filigreed and might have been manufactured in japan but for the exquisite pointing of the toes and the brilliant tints of the binding and embroidery that his breeches were of the yellow satin-like material called aimable that his sky-blue cloak resembling in form a dressing wrapper richly bestudded all over with crimson devices floated cavalierly upon his shoulders like a mist of the morning and that his tout ensemble gave rise to the remarkable words of Benevenuta, the improvisatrice of Florence, that it was difficult to say whether Pierre Bonbon was indeed a bird of paradise, or rather a very paradise of perfection. I might, I say, expatiate upon all these points if I pleased, but I forbear, merely personal details may be left to historical novelists. They are beneath the moral dignity of matter of fact. I have said that to enter the café in the cul de sac le fèbre was to enter the sanctum of a man of genius. But then it was only the man of genius who could duly estimate the merits of the sanction, a sign consisting of a vast folio swung before the entrance. On one side of the volume was painted a bottle, on the reverse a paint. On the back were visible in large letters, Oeuvre de Bonbon. Thus was delicately shadowed for the twofold occupation of the proprietor. Upon stepping over the threshold, the whole interior of the building presented itself to view. A long, low-pitched room of anti-construction was indeed all the accommodation afforded by the café. In a corner of the apartment stood the bed of the metaphysician. An army of curtains, together with a canopy à la craig, gave it an air at once classic and comfortable. In the corner, diagonally opposite, appeared in direct family communion the properties of the kitchen and the bibliothèque. 
A dish of polemics stood peacefully upon the dresser. Here lay an ovenful of the latest ethics, there a kettle of dudecimo melanges. Volumes of German morality were hand and glove with the gridiron. A toasting fork might be discovered by the side of Eusebius. Plato reclined at his ease in the frying pan, and contemporary manuscripts were filed away upon the spit. In other respects, the Café de Bonbon might be said to differ little from the usual restaurants of the period. A fireplace yawned opposite the door. On the right of the fireplace, an open cupboard displayed a formidable array of labelled bottles. It was here, about twelve o'clock one night, during the severe winter the comments of his neighbours upon his singular propensity, that Pierre Bonbon, I say, having turned them all out of his house, locked the door upon them with an oath, and betook himself in no very pacific mood to the comfort of a letter-bottomed armchair and a fire of blazing faggots. It was one of those terrific nights which are only met with once or twice during a century. It snowed fiercely, and the house tottered to its centre with the floods of wind that, rushing through the crannies in the wall and pouring impetuously down the chimney, shook awfully the curtains of the philosopher's bed and disorganised the economy of his paid pans and papers. The huge folio sign that swung without, exposed to the fury of the tempest, creaked ominously and gave out a moaning sound from its stanchions of solid oak. It was in no placid temper, I say, that the metaphysician drew up his chair to its customary station by the hearth. Many circumstances of a perplexing nature had occurred during the day to disturb the serenity of his meditations. In attempting des oeufs à la princesse, he had unfortunately perpetrated an omelette à la reine. The discovery of a principle in ethics had been frustrated by the overturning of a stew. At last, not least, he had been thwarted in one of those admirable bargains which he at all times took such a special delight in bringing to a successful termination. But in the chafing of his mind at these unaccountable vicissitudes, there did not fail to be mingled some degree of that nervous anxiety which the fury of a boisterous night is so well calculated to produce. Whistling to his more immediate vicinity the large black water-dog we have spoken of before, and settling himself uneasily in his chair, he could not help casting a wary and unquiet eye toward those distant recesses of the apartment, whose inexorable shadows not even the red firelight itself could more than partially succeed in overcoming. Having completed a scrutiny whose exact purpose was perhaps unintelligible to himself, he drew close to his seat a small table covered with books and papers and soon became absorbed in the task of retouching a voluminous manuscript intended for publication on the morrow. He had been thus occupied for some minutes when, I am in no hurry, Monsieur Bonbon, suddenly whispered a whining voice in the apartment. The devil! ejaculated our hero, starting to his feet, overturning the table at his side, 
and staring around him in astonishment. Very true, calmly replied the voice. Very true? What is very true? How came you here? vociferated the metaphysician as his eye fell upon something which lay stretched at full length upon the bed. I was saying, said the intruder without attending the interrogatives, I was saying that I am not at all pushed for time, that the business upon which I took the liberty of calling is of no pressing importance. In short, that I can very well wait until you have finished your exposition. My exposition? There, now, how do you know? How came you to understand that I was writing an exposition? Good God! Hush! replied the figure in a shrill undertone. And arising quickly from the bed, he made a single step toward our hero, while an iron lamp that depended overhead swung convulsively back from his approach. The philosopher's amazement did not prevent a narrow scrutiny of the stranger's dress and appearance. The outlines of his figure, exceedingly lean, but much above the common height, were rendered minutely distinct by means of a faded suit of black cloth which fitted tight to the skin, but was otherwise cut very much in the style of a century ago. These garments had evidently been intended for a much shorter person than their present owner. His ankles and wrists were left naked for several inches. In his shoes, however, a pair of very brilliant buckles gave the lie to the extreme poverty implied by the other portions of his dress. His head was bare and entirely bald, with the exception of a hinder part, from which depended a queue of considerable length. A pair of green spectacles with side glasses protected his eyes from the influence of the light, and at the same time prevented our hero from ascertaining either their color or their conformation. About the entire person there was no evidence of a shirt, but a white cravat of filthy appearance was tied with extreme precision around the throat and the ends hanging down formally side by side gave, although I dare say unintentionally, the idea of an ecclesiastic. Indeed, many other points, both in his appearance and demeanor, might have very well sustained a conception of that nature. Over his left ear he carried, after the fashion of a modern clerk, an instrument resembling the stylus of the ancients, in a breast pocket of his coat appeared conspicuously a small black volume fastened with clasps of steel. This book, whether accidentally or not, was so turned outwardly from the person as to discover the words Rituel Catholique in white letters upon the back. Our physiognomy was interestingly saturnine even cadaverously pale. The forehead was lofty and deeply furrowed with the ridges of contemplation. The corners of the mouth were drawn down into an expression of the most submissive humility. There was also a clasping of the hands as he stepped toward our hero, a deep sigh and altogether a look of such utter sanctity 
as could not have failed to be unequivocally prepossessing. Every shadow of anger faded from the countenance of the metaphysician, as, having completed a satisfactory survey of his visitor's person, he shook him cordially by the hand and conducted him to a seat. There would, however, be a radical error in attributing this instantaneous transition of feeling in the philosopher to any one of those causes which might naturally be supposed to have had an influence. Indeed, Pierre Bonbon, from what I have been able to understand of his disposition, was of all men the least likely to be imposed upon by any speciousness of exterior deportment. It was impossible that so acute an observer of men and things should have failed to discover, upon the moment, the real character of the personage who had thus intruded upon his hospitality. To say no more, the conformation of the visitor's feet was sufficiently remarkable. He maintained lightly upon his head an inordinately tall hat. There was a tremendous swelling about the hinder parts of his breeches, and the vibration of his coat-tail was a palpable fact. Judge, then, with what feelings of satisfaction our hero found himself thrown thus at once into the society of a person for whom he had at all times entertained the most unqualified respect. He was, however, too much of the diplomatist to let escape from him any intimation of his suspicions in regard to the true state of affairs. It was not his cue to appear at all conscious of the high honor he thus unexpectedly enjoyed, but by leading his guest into the conversation to elicit some important ethical ideas which might, in obtaining a place in his contemplated publication, enlighten the human race, and at the same time immortalize himself, ideas which, I should have added, his visitor's great age and well-known proficiency in the science of morals might very well have enabled him to afford. Actuated by these enlightened views, our hero bade the gentleman sit down, while he himself took occasion to throw some faggots upon the fire and place upon the now re-established table some bottles of mousseau. Having quickly completed these operations, he drew his chair vis-à-vis -vis to his companions and waited until the latter should open the conversation. But plans even the most skillfully matured are often thwarted in the outset of their application, and the restaurateur found himself nonplussed by the very first words of his visitor's speech. "'I see you know me, Bonbon,' said he. "'Ha, ha, ha! And the devil, dropping at once the sanctity of his demeanor, opened to its fullest extent a mouth from ear to ear, so as to display a set of jagged and fang-like teeth, and throwing back his head, laughed long, loudly, wickedly, and uproariously, while the black dog, crouching down upon his haunches, joined lustily in the chorus, and the tabby cat, flying off at a tangent, stood up on end and shrieked in the farthest corner of the apartment. Not so the philosopher, 
He was too much a man of the world, either to laugh like the dog, or by shrieks to betray the indecorous trepidation of the cat. It must be confessed, he felt a little astonishment to see the white letters which formed the words Rituel Catholique on the book in his guest's pocket, momently changing both their color and their import, and in a few seconds in place of the original title the words Registre de Condamned blazed forth in characters of red. This startling circumstance, when Bonbon replied to his visitor's remark, imparted to his manner an air of embarrassment, which probably might not otherwise have been observed. "'Why, sir,' said the philosopher, "'why, sir, to speak sincerely, I, I imagine I have some faint, some very faint idea of the remarkable honor—' "'Why, yes, very well,' interrupted his majesty. "'Say no more.' I see how it is. And hereupon, taking off his green spectacles, he wiped the glasses carefully with the sleeve of his coat and deposited them in his pocket. If Bonbon had been astonished by the incident of the book, his amazement was now much increased by the spectacle which here presented itself to view. In raising his eyes with a strong feeling of curiosity to ascertain the color of his guests, he found them by no means black as he had anticipated, nor gray as might have been imagined, nor yet hazel, nor blue, nor indeed yellow, nor red, nor purple, nor white, nor green, nor any other color in the heavens above, or in the earth beneath, or in the waters upon the earth. In short, Pierre Bonbon not only saw plainly that His Majesty had no eyes whatsoever, but could discover no indications of their having existed at any previous period, for the space where eyes should naturally have been was, I am constrained to say, simply a dead level of flesh. It was not in the nature of the metaphysician to forbear making some inquiry into the sources of so strange a phenomenon, and the reply of his majesty was at once prompt, dignified, and satisfactory. Eyes. My dear Bonbon, eyes, did you say? Oh, I, I perceive. The ridiculous prints, eh, which are in circulation, have given you a false idea of my personal appearance. Eyes, true. Eyes, Pierre Bonbon, are very well in their proper place. That you would say is in the head, right? The head of a worm? To you, likewise, these optics are indispensable, yet I will convince you that my vision is more penetrating than your own. There is a cat I can see in the corner, a pretty cat. Look at her. Observe her well. Now, Bonbon, do you behold the thoughts? The thoughts, I say, the ideas, the reflections, which are being engendered in her pericranium? There it is now. You do not. She is thinking we admire the length of her tail and the profundity of her mind. She has just conceived that I am the most distinguished of ecclesiastics, that you are the most superficial of metaphysicians. Thus, you see, I am not altogether blind, but to one of my profession, the eyes you speak of would be merely an encumbrance, liable at any time to be put out by a toasting iron or a pitchfork. 
To you, I allow, these optical affairs are indispensable. Endeavor, Bonbon, to use them well. My vision is the soul. Hereupon the guest helped himself to the wine upon the table, and pouring out a bumper for Bonbon, requested him to drink it without scruple, and make himself perfectly at home. A clever book of yours, Pierre, resumed his majesty, tapping our friend knowingly upon the shoulder, as the latter put down his glass after a thorough compliance with his visitor's injunction. A clever book, that of yours, upon my honor. It's a work after my own heart. Your arrangement of the matter, I think, however, might be improved, and many of your notions remind me of Aristotle. That philosopher was one of my most intimate acquaintances. I liked him as much for his terrible ill temper as for his happy knack at making a blunder. There is only one solid truth in all that he has written, and for that I gave him the hint, out of pure compassion for his absurdity. I suppose, Pierre Bonbon, you very well know to what divine moral truth I am alluding. Cannot say that I... Indeed, why it was, I, who told Aristotle, that by sneezing men expelled superfluous ideas through the proboscis? Which is undoubtedly the case, said the metaphysician, while he poured out for himself another bumper of Mousseau, and offered his snuff-box to the fingers of his visitor. There was Plato, too, continued his majesty, modestly declining the snuff-box, and the compliment it implied. There was Plato, too, for whom I at one time felt all the affection of a friend. You knew Plato, Bonbon? Ah, no, I beg a thousand pardons. He met me at Athens one day in the Parthenon, and told me he was distressed for an idea. I bade him write down that oh nu estran alu. He said he would do so, and went home, while I stepped over to the pyramids. But my conscience smote me for having uttered a truth, even to aid a friend, and hastened back to Athens. I arrived behind the philosopher's chair as he was indicting the alu, giving the lambda a flip with my finger. I turned it upside down, so the sentence now read, O nu esten august, that is, you perceive the fundamental doctrines in his metaphysics. Were you ever at Rome? asked the restaurateur as he finished his second bottle of Mousseau, and drew from the closet a larger supply of Chambertin. But once, Monsieur Bonbon, but once there was a time, said the devil, as if reciting some passage from a book. There was a time when occurred an anarchy of five years, during which the Republic, bereft of all its officers, had no magistracy besides the tribunes of the people, and these were not legally vested with any degree of executive power at that time. Monsieur Bonbon, at that time only was I in Rome, and I have no earthly acquaintance, consequently, with any of its philosophy. Note 2. Il écrivain sur la philosophie, Cicero, Lucretius, Seneca, mais c'est à la philosophie grecque, Condorcet. What do you think of? What do you think of? Epicurus? What do I think of whom? said the devil in astonishment. You cannot surely mean to find any fault with Epicurus. What do I think of Epicurus? Do you mean me, sir? I am Epicurus. I am the same philosopher who wrote each of the three hundred treatises commemorated by Diogenes Laertes. That's a lie, said the metaphysician. 
for the wine had gotten a little into his head. "'Very well, sir. Very well, sir. Very well. Indeed, sir,' said His Majesty, apparently much flattered. "'That's a lie,' repeated the restaurateur dogmatically. "'That's a, a lie!' "'Well, well, have it your own way,' said the devil, pacifically, and Bonbon, having beaten His Majesty at argument, thought it his duty to conclude a second bottle of Chambertin. "'As I was saying,' resumed the visitor, "'as I was observing a little while ago, "'there are some very autre notions in that book of yours, Monsieur Bonbon. "'What, for instance, do you mean by all that humbug about the soul? "'Pray, sir, what is the soul?' "'The soul!' replied the metaphysician, referring to his manuscripts, is undoubtedly no, sir. Indubitably no, sir. Indisputably no, sir. Evidently no, sir. Incontrovertibly no, sir. No, sir. And beyond all question is a no, sir. The soul is no such thing. Here the philosopher, looking daggers, took occasion to make an end upon the spot of his third bottle of Chambertin. Then, pray, sir, what, what is it? That is neither here nor there, Monsieur Bonbon, replied His Majesty musingly. I have tasted, uh, that is to say, I have known some very bad souls, and some two pretty good ones. Here he smacked his lips, and having unconsciously let fall his hand upon the volume in his pocket, was seized with a violent fit of sneezing. He continued, There was the soul of Cratinus, passable, Aristophanes, racy, Plato, exquisite, not your Plato, but Plato the comic poet. Your Plato would have turned the stomach of Cerberus. Fah! Then let me see. There were Navius, and Andronicus, and Plautus, and Ternetius, then there was Lucilius and Cassius and Nasso and Quintus Flaccus. Oh, Quinty, as I called him when he sung A Seculaire for my amusement, while I toasted him in pure good humor on a fork. But they want flavor, these Romans. One fat Greek is worth a dozen of them. Besides, we'll keep, which cannot be said of a queerite. Let us taste your Sauterne. Bonbon had by this time made up his mind to kneel Ademari and endeavored to hand down the bottle in question. He was, however, conscious of a strange sound in the room like the wagging of a tail. Of this, although extremely indecent in his majesty, the philosopher took no notice, simply kicking the dog and requesting him to be quiet. The visitor continued. I found that Horace tasted very much like Aristotle. You know, I am fond of variety. Ternetius I could not have told from Menander. Nasso, to my astonishment, was Nysander in disguise. Virgilius had a strong twang of Theocritus. Marshall put me much in mind of Archilochus, and Titus Livius was positively Polybius, and none other. <coughs> Here replied Bonbon, and his majesty proceeded. But if I have a penchant, Monsieur Bonbon, if I have a penchant, it is for a philosopher. Yet, let me tell you, sir, it is not every div I mean, it is not every gentleman who knows how to choose a philosopher. Long ones are not good, and the best, if not carefully shelled, are apt to be a little rancid on account of the gall. Shelled? I mean, 
taken out of the carcass. What do you think of a <coughs> physician? Don't mention them. <coughs> Here his majesty retched violently. I never tasted but one. That rascal Hippocrates smelt of asaphodia. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Caught me a wretched cold washing him in the sticks. And after all, he gave me the cholera morbus. The wretch, ejaculated Bonbon. The absorption of a pillbox. And the philosopher dropped a tear. After all, continued the visitor, after all, if a diff... If a gentleman wishes to live, he must have more talents than one or two, and with us a fat face is an evidence of diplomacy. How so? Why, we are sometimes exceedingly pushed for provisions. You must know that in a climate so sultry as mine it is frequently impossible to keep a spirit alive for more than two or three hours, and after death, unless picked immediately, and a pickled spirit is not good, they will smell, you understand, eh? Putrefaction is always to be apprehended when the souls are consigned to us in the usual way. Good God, how do you manage? Here the iron lamp commenced swinging with redoubled vigor, and the devil half started from his seat. However, with a slight sigh, he recovered his composure, merely saying to our hero in a low tone, I tell you what, Pierre Bonbon, we must have no more swearing. The host swallowed another bumper, by the way of denoting thorough comprehension and acquiescence, and the visitor continued. Why, there are several ways of managing. The most of us starve. Some put up with the pickle. For my part, I purchased my spirits vivente corpore, in which case I find the keep very well. But the body, the body, the body, the body, well, what of the body? Oh, ah, I perceive. Why, sir, the body is not at all affected by the transaction. I have made innumerable purchases of the kind in my day, and the parties never experienced any inconvenience. There were Cain, and Nimrod, and Nero, and Caligula, and Dionysus, and Pisistratus, and, and a thousand others, who never knew what it was to have a soul during the latter part of their lives, Yet, sir, these men adorned society. Why possession of his faculties, mental and corporeal? Who writes a keener epigram? Who reasons more wittily? Who— But stay, I have his agreement in my pocket-book. Thus saying, he produced a red leather wallet, and took from it a number of papers. Upon some of these, Bonbon caught a glimpse of the letters, Machi, Maza, Robespierre, with the words Caligula, George, Elizabeth, His Majesty selected a narrow slip of parchment, and from it read aloud the following words. In consideration of certain mental endowments, which it is unnecessary to specify, and in further consideration of one thousand louis d'or, I, being aged one year and one month, do hereby make over to the bearer of this agreement, all my right, title, and appurtenance, in the shadow called my soul, signed A. Note 4. Pierre Arroway. Here His Majesty repeated a name which I did not feel justified in indicating more unequivocally. A clever fellow, that, resumed he, 
But like you, Monsieur Bonbon, he was mistaken about the soul. The soul a shadow, truly. The soul a shadow. Ha, ha, ha. Only think of a fricasseed shadow. Only think of a fricasseed shadow, exclaimed our hero, whose faculties were becoming much illuminated by the profundity of His Majesty's discourse. Only think of a fricasseed shadow. Now, damn, humph, if I would have been such a nincompoop, my soul, Mr. Your soul, Monsieur Bonbon? Yes, sir, my soul is... What, sir? No shadow, damn? Did you mean to say? Yes, sir, my soul is... Humph, yes, sir. Did you not intend to assert? My soul is... Peculiarly qualified for a... Uh, what, sir? Stew. Ha! Souffle? Eh. Fricassee. Indeed. Ragout and fricandeau. And see here, my good fellow. I let you have it. A bargain. Here the philosopher slapped his majesty upon the back. Couldn't think of any such thing, said the latter calmly, at the same time rising from his seat. The metaphysician stared. I'm supplied at present, said his majesty. Eh, said the philosopher. Have no funds on hand. What? Besides, very unhandsome in me, sir, to take advantage of your present disgusting and ungentlemanly situation. Here the visitor bowed and withdrew, in what manner could not be precisely ascertained, but in a well-concerted effort to discharge a bottle at the villain, the slender chain was severed that depended from the ceiling, and the metaphysician prostrated by the downfall of the lamp. End of section 9. Recording by Simon Smoke and Kevin Davidson. Some Words with a Mummy by Edgar Allan Poe. The symposium of the preceding evening had been a little too much for my nerves. I had a wretched headache and was desperately drowsy. Instead of going out, therefore, to spend the evening as I had proposed, it occurred to me that I could not do a wiser thing than just eat a mouthful of supper and go immediately to bed. A light supper, of course. I am exceedingly fond of Welsh rabbit. More than a pound at once, however, may not at all times be advisable. Still, there can be no material objection to two. And, really, between two and three there is merely a single unit of difference. I ventured, perhaps, upon four. My wife will have a five, but clearly she has confounded two very distinct affairs. The abstract number five I am willing to admit, but concretely it has reference to bottles of brown stout, without which, in the way of condiment, Welsh rabbit is to be eschewed. Having thus concluded a frugal meal and donned my nightcap, with a serene hope of enjoying it till noon the next day, I placed my head upon the pillow, and, through the aid of a capital conscience, fell into a profound slumber forthwith. But when were the hopes of humanity fulfilled? I could not have completed my third snore, when there came a furious ringing at the street door bell, and then an impatient thumping at the knocker, which awakened me at once. 
in a minute afterward and while i was still rubbing my eyes my wife thrust in my face a note from my old friend dr poniner it ran thus come to me by all means my dear good friend as soon as you receive this come and help us rejoice at last by long persevering diplomacy i have gained the assent of the directors of the city museum to my examination of the mummy you know the one i mean i have permission to unswathe it and open it if desirable a few friends only will be present you of course the mummy is now at my house and we shall begin to enroll it at eleven tonight yours ever poniner by the time i had reached the poniner it struck me that i was as wide awake as a man need be i leapt out of bed in an ecstasy overthrowing all in my way dressed myself with a rapidity truly marvelous and set off at the top of my speed for the doctors there i found a very eager company assembled they had been awaiting me with much impatience the mummy was extended upon the dining table, and the moment I entered, its examination was commenced. It was one of a pair brought several years previously by Captain Arthur Sabertash, a cousin of Poniner's from a tomb near Elaetheus in the Libyan mountains, a considerable distance above Thebes on the Nile. The grottoes at this point, although less magnificent than the Theban sepulchres, are of higher interest on account of affording more numerous illustrations of the private life of the Egyptians. The chamber from which our specimen was taken was said to be very rich in such illustrations, the walls being completely covered with fresco paintings and bas-reliefs, while statues, vases, and mosaic work of rich patterns indicated the vast wealth of the deceased. The treasure had been deposited in the museum precisely in the same condition in which Captain Sabertash had found it. That is to say, the coffin had not been disturbed. For eight years it had thus stood, subject only externally to public inspection. We had now, therefore, the complete mummy at our disposal, and, to those who are aware of how very rarely the unransacked antique reaches our shores, it will be evident at once that we had great reason to congratulate ourselves upon our good fortune. Approaching the table, I saw on it a large box, or case, nearly seven feet long, and perhaps three feet wide, by two feet and a half deep. It was oblong, not coffin-shaped. The material was at first supposed to be the wood of the sycamore, platanus, but upon cutting into it we found it to be pasteboard, or, more properly, papier-mâché, composed of papyrus. It was thickly ornamented with paintings representing funeral scenes and other mournful subjects, interspersed among which, in every variety of position, were certain series of hieroglyphical characters, intended, no doubt, for the name of the departed. By good luck, Mr. Glidden formed one of our party, and he had no difficulty in translating the letters, which were simply phonetic and represented the word Alamastakio. We had some difficulty in getting this case open without injury, but, having at length accomplished the task, we came to a second, coffin-shaped and very considerably less in size than the exterior one, but resembling it precisely in every other respect. The interval between the two was filled with resin, which had in some degree defaced the colors of the interior box. Upon opening this latter, which we did quite easily, we arrived at a third case also coffin-shaped, 
and varying from the second one in no particular except in that of its material which was cedar and still emitted the peculiar and highly aromatic odor of that wood between the second and third case there was no interval the one fitting accurately within the other removing the third case we discovered and took out the body itself we had expected to find it as usual enveloped in frequent rolls or bandages of linen but in place of these we found a sort of sheath made of papyrus and coated with a layer of plaster thickly gilt and painted the paintings represented subjects connected with the various supposed duties of the soul and its presentation to different divinities with numerous identical human figures intended very probably as portraits of the persons embalmed extending from head to foot was a columnar or perpendicular inscription in phonetic hieroglyphics giving again his name and titles and the names and titles of his relations around the neck thus in sheath was a collar of cylindrical glass beads diverse in color and so arranged as to form images of deities of the scarabarius etc with the winged globe around the small of the waist was a similar collar or belt stripping off the papyrus we found the flesh in excellent preservation with no perceptible odor the color was reddish the skin was hard smooth and glossy the teeth and hair were in good condition the eyes it seemed had been removed and glass ones substituted which were very beautiful and wonderfully lifelike with the exception of somewhat too determined a stare the fingers and the nails were brilliantly gilded mr glidden was of the opinion from the redness of the epidermis that the embalmment had been effected altogether by asphaltum but on scraping the surface with a steel instrument and throwing into the fire some of the powder thus obtained the flavor of camphor and other sweet-scented gums became apparent we searched the corpse very carefully for the usual openings through which the entrails are extracted but to our surprise we could discover none no member of the party was at that period aware that entire or unopened mummies are not infrequently met the brain it was customary to withdraw through the nose the intestines through an incision in the side the body was then shaved, washed, and salted, then laid aside for several weeks, when the operation of embalming, properly so-called, began. As no trace of an opening could be found, Dr. Poniner was preparing his instruments for dissection, when I observed that it was past two o'clock. Hereupon it was agreed to postpone the internal examination until the next evening, and we were about to separate for the present when someone suggested an experiment or two with the voltaic pile the application of electricity to a mummy three or four thousand years old at least was an idea if not very sage still sufficiently original that we all caught it at once about one-tenth in earnest and nine-tenths in jest we arranged a battery in the doctor's study and conveyed thither the egyptian it was only after much trouble that we succeeded in laying bare some portions of the temporal muscle which appeared of less stony rigidity than other parts of the frame but which as we had anticipated of course gave no indication of galvanic susceptibility when brought in contact with the wire this the first trial indeed seemed decisive and with a hearty laugh at our own absurdity we were bidding each other good night when my eyes happening to fall upon those of the mummy were there immediately riveted in amazement 
my brief glance in fact had sufficed to assure me that the orbs which we had all supposed to be glass and which were originally noticeable for a certain wild stare were now so far covered by the lids that only a small portion of the tunica albuginea remained visible with a shout i called attention to the fact and it became immediately obvious to all i cannot say that i was alarmed at the phenomena because alarmed is in my case not exactly the word it is possible however that but for the brown stout i might have been a little nervous as for the rest of the company they really made no attempt at concealing the downright fright which possessed them dr ponner was a man to be pitied mr glidden by some peculiar process rendered himself invisible mr silk buckingham i fancy will scarcely be so bold as to deny that he made his way upon all fours under the table after the first shock of astonishment however we resolved as a matter of course upon further experiment forthwith our operations were now directed against the great toe of the right foot we made an incision over the outside of the exterior os sesamoidium polices pedis and thus got at the root of the abductor muscle readjusting the battery we now applied the fluid to the bisected nerves when with a moment of exceeding lifelikeness the mummy first drew up its right knee so as to bring it nearly in contact with the abdomen and then straightening the limb with inconceivable force bestowed a kick upon dr ponner which had the effect of discharging that gentleman like an arrow from a catapult through a window into the street below we rushed out en masse to bring in the mangled remains of the victim but had the happiness to meet him upon the staircase coming up in an unaccountable hurry brimful of the most ardent philosophy and more than ever impressed with the necessity of prosecuting our experiment with vigor and with zeal it was by his advice accordingly that we made upon the spot a profound incision into the tip of the subject's nose while the doctor himself laying violent hands upon it pulled it into vehement contact with the wire morally and physically figuratively and literally was the effect electric in the first place the corpse opened its eyes and winked very rapidly for several minutes as does mr barnes in the pantomime in the second place it sneezed in the third it sat upon end in the fourth it shook its fist in dr ponner's face in the fifth turning to messrs glidden and buckingham it addressed them in very capital egyptian thus i must say gentlemen that i am as much surprised as i am mortified at your behavior of dr ponner nothing better was to be expected he is a poor little fat fool who knows no better i pity and forgive him but you mr glidden and you silk who have traveled and resided in egypt until one might imagine you to the manner born you i say who have been so much among us that you speak egyptian fully as well i think as you write your mother tongue you who i have always been led to regard as the firm friend of the mummies i really did anticipate more gentlemanly conduct from you what am i to think of your standing quietly by and seeing me thus unhandsomely used 
what am i to suppose by your permitting tom dick and harry to strip me of my coffins and my clothes in this wretchedly cold climate in what light to come to the point am i to regard your aiding and abetting that miserable little villain dr poniner in pulling me by the nose it will be taken for granted no doubt that upon hearing this speech under the circumstances we all either made for the door or fell into violent hysterics or went off in a general swoon one of these three things was i say to be expected indeed each and all of these lines of conduct might have been very plausibly pursued and upon my word i am at a loss to know how or why it was that we pursued neither the one nor the other but perhaps the true reason is to be sought in the spirit of the age which proceeds by the rule of contraries altogether and is now usually admitted as the solution of everything in the way of paradox and impossibility or perhaps after all it was only the mummy's exceedingly natural and matter-of-course air that divested his words of the terrible however this may be the facts are clear and no member of our party betrayed any very particular trepidation or seemed to consider that anything had gone very especially wrong for my part i was convinced it was all right and merely stepped aside out of the range of the mummy's fist dr poniner thrust his hands into his breeches pockets looked hard at the mummy and grew excessively red in the face mr glidden stroked his whiskers and drew up the collar of his shirt mr buckingham hung down his head and put his right thumb into the left corner of his mouth the egyptian regarded him with a severe countenance for some minutes and at length with a sneer said why don't you speak mr buckingham did you hear what i asked you or not do take your thumb out of your mouth mr buckingham hereupon gave a slight start took his right thumb out of the left corner of his mouth and by way of indemnification inserted his left thumb in the right corner of the aperture above mentioned not being able to get an answer from mr b the figure turned peevishly to mr glidden and in a peremptory tone demanded in general terms what we all meant mr glidden replied at great length in phonetics and but for the deficiency of american printing offices in hieroglyphic type it would afford me much pleasure to record here in the original the whole of his very excellent speech i may as well take this occasion to remark that all the subsequent conversation in which the mummy took part was carried on in primitive egyptian through the medium so far as concerned myself and other untravelled members of the company through the medium i say of messrs glidden and buckingham as interpreters these gentlemen spoke the mother tongue of the mummy with inimitable fluency and grace but i could not help observing that owing no doubt to the introduction of images entirely modern and of course entirely novel to the stranger that the two travellers were reduced occasionally to the employment of sensible forms for the purpose of conveying a particular meaning mr glidden at one period for example could not make the egyptian comprehend the term politics until he sketched upon the wall with a bit of charcoal a little carbuncle-nosed gentleman out at the elbows standing upon a stump with his left leg drawn back right arm thrown forward with his fist shut the eyes rolled up toward heaven and the mouth open at an angle of ninety degrees just in the same way 
Mr. Buckingham failed to convey the absolute modern idea of wig, until, at Dr. Poniner's suggestion, he grew very pale in the face, and consented to take off his own. It will be readily understood that Mr. Glidden's discourse turned chiefly upon the vast benefits accruing to science from the unrolling and disemboweling of mummies, apologizing upon this score for any disturbance that might have been occasioned him. In particular, the individual mummy called Alamastachio, and concluding with a mere hint, for it could scarcely be considered more, that, as these little manners were now explained, it might be well to proceed with the investigation intended. Here Dr. Poniner made ready his instruments. In regard to the latter suggestion of the orator, it appears that Alamastachio had certain scruples of conscience, the nature of which I did not distinctly learn, but he expressed himself satisfied with the apologies tendered, and, getting down from the table, shook hands with the company all round. When this ceremony was at an end, we immediately busied ourselves in repairing the damages which our subject had sustained from the scalpel. We sewed up the wound in his temple, bandaged his foot, and applied a square inch of black plaster to the tip of his nose. It was now observed that the Count, this was the title, it seems, of Alamostachio, had a slight fit of shivering, no doubt from the cold. The doctor immediately repaired to his wardrobe, and soon returned with a black dress-coat, made in Jennings' best manner, a pair of sky-blue plaid pantaloons with straps, a pink gingham chemise, a flapped vest of brocade, a white sack overcoat, a walking cane with a hook, a hat with no brim, patent-leather boots, straw-colored kid gloves, an eyeglass, a pair of whiskers, and a waterfall cravat. Owing to the disparity of size between the Count and the doctor, the proportion being as two to one, there was some little difficulty in adjusting these habiliments upon the person of the Egyptian. But, when all was arranged, he might have been said to be dressed. Mr. Glidden, therefore, gave him his arm and led him to a comfortable chair by the fire, while the doctor rang the bell upon the spot and ordered a supply of cigars and wine. The conversation soon grew animated. Much curiosity was, of course, expressed in regard to the somewhat remarkable fact of all Mustachios still remaining alive. I should have thought, observed Mr. Buckingham, that it is high time you were dead. Why, replied the Count, very much astonished, I am little more than seven hundred years old. My father lived a thousand, and was by no means in his dotage when he died. Here ensued a brisk series of questions and computations by means of which it became evident that the antiquity of the mummy had been grossly misjudged. It had been five thousand and fifty years and some months since he had been consigned to the catacombs at Eleithias. But my remark, resumed Mr. Buckingham, had no reference to your age at the period of interment. I am willing to grant, in fact, that you are still a young man, and my allusion was to the immensity of time during which by your own showing, you must have been done up in asphaltum. In what? said the Count. In asphaltum, persisted Mr. B. Ah, yes. I have some faint notion of what you mean. It might be made to answer, no doubt, but in my time we employed scarcely anything else than the bichloride of mercury. But what we are especially at a loss to understand, said Dr. Poniner, 
is how it happens that having been dead and buried in Egypt five thousand years ago, you are here today all alive and looking so delightfully well. Had I been, as you say, dead, replied the Count, it is more than probable that dead I should still be, for I perceive you are yet in the infancy of Calvinism, and cannot accomplish with it what was a common thing among us in the old days. But the fact is, I fell into catalepsy, and it was considered by my best friends that I was either dead or should be. They accordingly embalmed me at once. I presume you are aware of the chief principle of the embalming process. Why, not altogether. Why, I perceive a deplorable condition of ignorance. Well, I cannot enter into details just now, but it is necessary to explain that to embalm, properly speaking, in Egypt, was to arrest indefinitely all the animal functions subjected to the process. I use the word animal in its widest sense, as including the physical, not more than the moral and vital being. I repeat that the leading principle of embalmment consisted with us in the immediately arresting and holding in perpetual abeyance all the animal functions subjected to the process. To be brief, in whatever condition the individual was at the period of embalmment, in that condition he remained. Now, as it is my good fortune to be of the blood of the Scarabarius, I was embalmed alive, as you see me at present. The blood of the Scarabarius? exclaimed Dr. Poniner. Yes, the Scarabarius was the insignium, or the arms, of a very distinguished and very rare patrician family. To be of the blood of the Scarabarius is merely to be one of that family, of which the Scarabarius is the insignium. I speak figuratively. But what has this to do with you being alive? Why, it is the general custom in Egypt to deprive a corpse, before embalmment, of its bowels and brains. The race of the Scarabarii alone did not coincide with the custom. Had I not been a Scarabarius, therefore, I should have been without bowels and brains, and without either it is inconvenient to live. I perceive that, said Mr. Buckingham, and I presume that all the entire mummies that come to hand are of the race of the Scarabarii. Beyond doubt. I thought, said Mr. Glidden, very meekly, that the Scarabarius was one of the Egyptian gods. One of the Egyptian what? exclaimed the mummy starting to its feet. Gods, repeated the traveller. Mr. Glidden, I really am astonished to hear you talk in this style, said the Count, resuming his chair. No nation upon the face of the earth has ever acknowledged more than one god. The Scarabarius, the Ibis, etc., were to us, as similar creatures have been with others, the symbols, or media through which we offered worship to the Creator, too august to be more directly approached. There was here a pause. At length, the colloquy was renewed by Dr. Poniner. It is not improbable, then, from what you have explained, said he, that among the catacombs near the Nile there may exist other mummies of the Scarabarius tribe in a condition of vitality? There can be no question of it, replied the Count. 
all the scarabarii embalmed accidentally while alive are alive now even some of those purposely so embalmed may have been overlooked by their executors and still remain in the tomb will you be kind enough to explain i said what you mean by purposely so embalmed with great pleasure answered the mummy after surveying me leisurely through his eyeglass for it was the first time i had ventured to address him a direct question with great pleasure he said the usual duration of a man's life in my time was about eight hundred years few men died unless by most extraordinary accident before the age of six hundred few lived longer than a decade of centuries but eight were considered the natural term after the discovery of the embalming principle as i have already described it to you it occurred to our philosophers that a laudable curiosity might be gratified and at the same time the interest of science much advanced by living this natural term in installments in the case of history indeed experience demonstrated that something of this kind was indispensable an historian for example having attained the age of five hundred would write a book with great labor and then get himself carefully embalmed leaving instructions to his executors pro tem that they should cause him to be revivified after the lapse of a certain period say five or six hundred years resuming existence at the expiration of this time he would invariably find his great work converted into a species of haphazard notebook that is to say into a kind of literary arena for the conflicting guesses riddles and personal squabbles of whole herds of exasperated commentators these guesses etc which passed under the name of annotations or emendations were found so completely to have enveloped distorted and overwhelmed the text that the author had to go about with a lantern to discover his own book when discovered it was never worth the trouble of the search after rewriting it throughout it was regarded as the bounden duty of the historian to set himself to work immediately in correcting from his own private knowledge and experience the traditions of the day concerning the epoch at which he had originally lived now this process of rescription and personal rectification pursued by various individual sages from time to time had the effect of preventing our history from degenerating into absolute fable i beg your pardon said dr poniner at this point laying his hand gently upon the arm of the egyptian i beg your pardon sir but may i presume to interrupt you for one moment by all means sir replied the count drawing up i merely wish to ask you a question said the doctor you mentioned the historian's personal correction of the traditions respecting his own epoch pray sir upon an average what proportion of these kabbalah were usually found to be right the kabbalah as you properly term them sir were generally discovered to be precisely on a par with the facts recorded in the unrewritten histories themselves that is to say not one individual iota of either was ever known under any circumstances to not be totally and radically wrong but since it is quite clear resumed the doctor that at least five thousand years have elapsed since your entombment i take it for granted that your histories at that period if not your traditions were sufficiently explicit on that one topic of universal interest the creation which took place as i presume you are aware only about ten centuries before 
Sir, said the Count Alamastachio. The doctor repeated his remarks, but it was only after much additional explanation that the foreigner could be made to comprehend them. The latter at length said hesitatingly, The ideas you have suggested are, to me, I confess, utterly novel. During my time I never knew any one to entertain so singular a fancy as that the universe, or this world if you would have it so, ever had a beginning at all. I remember once, and only once, hearing something remotely hinted by a man of many speculations concerning the origin of the human race, and by this individual the very word Adam, or Red Earth, which you make use of, was employed. He employed it, however, in a generical sense, with reference to the spontaneous germination from rank soil, just as a thousand of lower genera of creatures are germinated. The spontaneous germination, I say, of five vast hordes of men, simultaneously upspringing in five distinct and nearly equal divisions of the globe. Here, in general, the company shrugged their shoulders, and one or two of us touched our foreheads with a very significant air. Mr. Silk Buckingham, first glancing slightly at the occiput and then at the sensiput of Alamastachio, spoke as follows. The long duration of human life in your time, together with the occasional practice of passing it, as you have explained in installments, must have had, indeed, a strong tendency to the general development and conglomeration of knowledge. I presume, therefore, that we are to attribute the marked inferiority of the old Egyptians in all particulars of science, when compared with the moderns, and more especially with the Yankees, altogether to the superior solidity of the Egyptian skull. I confess again, replied the Count, with much suavity, that I am somewhat at a loss to comprehend you. Pray, to what particulars of science do you allude? Here our whole party, joining voices, detailed at great length the assumptions of phrenology and the marvels of animal magnetism. Having heard us to an end, the Count proceeded to relate a few anecdotes, which rendered it evident that the prototypes of Gaul and Spurzheim had flourished and faded in Egypt so long ago as to have been nearly forgotten, and that the maneuvers of Mesmer were really very contemptible tricks when put in collation with the positive miracles of the Theban savants, who created lice and a great many other similar things. I here asked the Count if his people were able to calculate eclipses. He smiled rather contemptuously and said they were. This put me a little out, but I began to make other inquiries in regard to his astronomical knowledge, when a member of the company, who had never as yet opened his mouth, whispered in my ear, that for information on this head I had better consult Ptolemy, whoever Ptolemy is, as well as one Plutarch de Fasci Lunae. I then questioned the mummy about burning glasses and lenses, and in general about the manufacture of glass. But I had not made an end to my queries before the silent member again touched me quietly on the elbow, and begged me for God's sake to take a peep at Diodorus Siculus. As for the Count, he merely asked me, in the way of reply, if we moderns possessed any such microscopes as would enable us to cut cameos in the style of the Egyptians. While I was thinking how I should answer this question, little Dr. Poninger committed himself in a very extraordinary way. Look at our architecture, he exclaimed. 
greatly to the indignation of both the travellers who pinched him black and blue to no purpose look he cried with enthusiasm at the bowling green fountain in new york or if this be too vast a contemplation regard for a moment the capital at washington d c and the good little medical man went on to detail very minutely the proportions of the fabric to which he referred he explained that the portico alone was adorned with no less than four and twenty columns five feet in diameter and ten feet apart the count said that he regretted not being able to remember just at that moment the precise dimensions of any one of the principal buildings of the city of asnac whose foundations were laid in the night of time but the ruins of which were still standing at the epoch of his entombment in a vast plain of sand to the westward of thebes he recollected however talking of the porticos that one affixed to an inferior palace of a kind of suburb called karnak consisted of a hundred and forty-four columns thirty-seven feet in circumference and twenty-five feet apart the approach to this portico from the nile was through an avenue two miles long composed of sphinxes statues and obelisks twenty sixty and a hundred feet in height the palace itself as well as he could remember was in one direction two miles long and it might have been altogether about seven in circuit its walls were richly painted all over within and without with hieroglyphics he would not pretend to assert that even fifty or sixty of the doctor's capitals might have been built within these walls but he was by no means sure that the two or three hundred of them might not have been squeezed in with some trouble the palace at karnak was an insignificant little building after all he the count however could not conscientiously refuse to admit the ingenuity magnificence and superiority of the fountain at the bowling green as described by the doctor nothing like it he was forced to allow had ever been seen in egypt or elsewhere i here asked the count what he had to say to our railroads nothing he replied in particular they were rather slight rather ill-conceived and clumsily put together they could not be compared of course with the vast level direct iron-grooved causeways upon which the egyptians conveyed entire temples and solid obelisks of a hundred and fifty feet in altitude i spoke of our gigantic mechanical forces he agreed that we knew something in that way but inquired how i should have gone to work in getting up the imposts on the lintels at even the little palace at karnak this question i concluded not to hear and demanded if he had any idea of artesian wells but he simply raised his eyebrows while mr glidden winked at me very hard and said in a low tone that one had been recently discovered by the engineers employed to bore for water in the great oasis i then mentioned our steel but the foreigner elevated his nose and asked me if our steel could have executed the sharp carved work seen on the obelisks and which had been wrought altogether by edged tools of copper this disconcerted us so greatly that we thought it advisable to vary the attack to metaphysics we sent for a copy of a book called the dial and read out a chapter or two about something that is not very clear which the bostonians call the great movement of progress the count merely said that the great movements were awfully common things in his day and as for progress it was at one time quite a nuisance but it never progressed 
we then spoke of the great beauty and importance of democracy and were at much trouble in impressing the count with a due sense of the advantages we enjoyed in living where there was suffrage ad libitum and no king he listened with marked interest and in fact seemed not a little amused when we had done he said that a great while ago there had occurred something of a very similar sort thirteen egyptian provinces determined all at once to be free and to set a magnificent example to the rest of mankind they assembled their wise men and concocted the most ingenious constitution it was possible to conceive for a while they managed remarkably well only their habit of bragging was prodigious the thing ended however in the consolidation of the thirteen states with some fifteen or twenty others in the most odious and insupportable despotism that was ever heard of upon the face of the earth i asked what was the name of the usurping tyrant as well as the count could recollect it was mob not knowing what to say to this i raised my voice and deplored the egyptian ignorance of steam the count looked at me with much astonishment but made no answer the silent gentleman however gave me a violent nudge in the ribs with his elbows told me i had sufficiently exposed myself for once and demanded if i was really such a fool as not to know that the modern steam engine is derived from the invention of hero through solomon de caus we were now in imminent danger of being discomfited but as good luck would have it dr Ponner, having rallied returned to our rescue and inquired if the people of egypt would seriously pretend to rival the moderns in the all-important particular of dress the count at this glanced downward to the straps of his pantaloons and then taking hold of the end of one of his coat-tails held it up close to his eyes for some minutes letting it fall at last his mouth extended itself very gradually from ear to ear but i do not remember that he said anything in the way of reply hereupon we recovered our spirits and the doctor approaching the mummy with great dignity desired it to say candidly upon its honor as a gentleman if the egyptians had comprehended at any period the manufacture of either poniner's lozenges or brandreth's pills we looked with profound anxiety for an answer but in vain it was not forthcoming the egyptian blushed and hung down his head never was triumph more consummate never was defeat borne with so ill a grace indeed i could not endure the spectacle of the poor mummy's mortification i reached my hat bowed to him stiffly and took leave upon getting home i found it past four o'clock and went immediately to bed it is now ten a m i have been up since seven penning these memoranda for the benefit of my family and of mankind the former i shall behold no more my wife is a shrew the truth is i am heartily sick of this life and of the nineteenth century in general i am convinced that everything is going wrong besides i am anxious to know who will be president in twenty forty five as soon therefore as i shave and swallow a cup of coffee i shall just step over to poniner's and get embalmed for a couple of hundred years end of section ten by the cubic foot or pollock by the pound but what else are we to infer from their continuing prating about sustained effort 
if by sustained effort any little gentleman has accomplished an epic let us frankly commend him for the effort if this is indeed a thing commendable but let us forbear praising the epic on the effort's account it is to be hoped that common sense in the time to come will prefer deciding upon a work of art rather by the impression it makes by the effect it produces than by the time it took to impress the effect or the amount of sustained effort which had been found necessary in effecting the impression the fact is that perseverance is one thing and genius quite another nor can all the quarterlies in christendom confound them by and by this proposition with many which i have just been urging will be received as self-evident in the meantime by being generally condemned as falsities they will not be essentially damaged as truths on the other hand it is clear that a poem may be improperly brief undue brevity degenerates into mere epigrammatism a very short poem while now and then producing a brilliant or vivid never produces a profound or enduring effect there must be the steady pressing down of the stamp upon the wax Beranger has wrought innumerable things, pungent and spirit-stirring, but in general they have been too imponderous to stamp themselves deeply into the public attention. And thus, as so many feathers of fancy, have been blown aloft only to be whistled down in the wind. A remarkable instance of the effect of undue brevity in depressing poem, in keeping it out of the popular view, is afforded by the following exquisite little serenade. I arise from the dream of thee in the first sweet sleep of night, when the winds are breathing low and the stars are shining bright. I arise from dreams of thee, and a spirit in my feet has led me, who knows how, to thy chamber window, sweet. The wandering airs, they faint on the dark, the silent stream, the champak odors fail like sweet thoughts in a dream. The nightingale's complaint, it dies upon the heart, as I must die on thine, O beloved, as thou art. O lift me from the grass, I die, I faint, I fail. Let thy love in kisses rain on my lips and eyelids pale. My cheek is cold and white, alas, my heart beats loud and fast. O press it close to thine again, where it will break at last. Very few, perhaps, are familiar with these lines, yet... No less a poet than Shelley is their author. Their warm yet delicate and ethereal imagination will be appreciated by all, and by none so thoroughly as by him who has himself arisen from sweet dreams of one beloved to bathe in the aromatic air of a southern midsummer night. One of the finest poems by Willis, the very best in my opinion which he has ever written, has no doubt through this same defect of undue brevity been kept back from its proper position, not less in the critical than in the popular view. The shadows lay along Broadway, t'was near the twilight tide, as slowly there a lady fair was walking in her pride. Alone walked she, but viewlessly walked spirits at her side. Peace charmed the street beneath her feet, and honor charmed the air, and all astir looked kind on her, and called her good as fair. For all God ever gave to her, she kept with cherry care. She kept with care her beauties rare from lovers warm and true. 
for heart was cold to all but gold, and the rich came not to woo, but honored well her charms to sell, if priests the selling do. Now walking there was one more fair, a slight girl, lily pale, and she had unseen company to make the spirit quail. Twixt want and scorn she walked forlorn, and nothing could avail. No mercy now can clear her brow for this world's peace to pray. For as love's wild prayer dissolved in air, her woman's heart gave way. But the sin forgiven by Christ in heaven, by man, is cursed alway. In this composition, we find it difficult to recognize the Willis who has written so many mere verses of society. The lines are not only richly ideal, but full of energy, while they breathe an earnestness and evident sincerity of sentiment, for which we look in vain throughout all the other works of this author. While the epic mania, while the idea that to merit in poetry prolixity is indispensable, has for some years been gradually dying out of the public mind by mere dint of its own absurdity, we find it succeeded by a heresy too palpably false to be long tolerated, but one which in the brief period it has already endured may be said to have accomplished more in the corruption of our poetical literature than all its other enemies combined. I allude to the heresy of the didactic. It has been assumed tacitly and avowedly, directly and indirectly, that the ultimate object of all poetry is truth. Every poem, it is said, should inculcate a moral, and by this moral is the poetical merit of the work to be adjudged. We Americans especially have patronized this happy idea, and we Bostonians very especially have developed it in full. We have taken it into our heads that to write a poem simply for the poem's sake, and to acknowledge such to have been our design, would be to confess ourselves radically wanting in the true poetic dignity and force. But the simple fact is that we would but permit ourselves to look into our own souls, we should immediately there discover that under the sun there neither exists nor can exist any work more thoroughly dignified, more supremely noble than this very poem, this poem per se, this poem which is a poem and nothing more, this poem written solely for the poem's sake. With as deep a reverence for the true as ever inspired the bosom of man, I would nevertheless limit, in some measure, its modes of inculcation. I would limit to enforce them. I would not enfeeble them by dissipation. The demands of truth are severe. She has no sympathy with the myrtles. All that which is so indispensable in song is precisely all that which she has nothing whatever to do. But it is but making her a flaunting paradox to wreathe her in gems and flowers. In enforcing a truth, we need severity rather than efflorescence of language. We must be simple, precise, terse. We must be cool, calm, unimpassioned. In a word, we must be in that mood which, as nearly as possible, is the exact converse of the poetical. He must be blind indeed who does not perceive the radical and chasmal difference between the truthful and the poetical modes of inculcation. He must be theory-mad, beyond redemption, 
who in spite of these differences shall still persist in attempting to reconcile the obstinate oils and waters of poetry and truth. Dividing the world of mind into its three most immediately obvious distinctions, we have the pure intellect, taste, and the moral sense. I place taste in the middle because it is just this position which in the mind it occupies. It holds intimate relations with either extreme, but from a moral sense is separated by so faint a difference that Aristotle has not hesitated to place some of its operations among the virtues themselves. Nevertheless, we find the offices of the trio marked with a sufficient distinction. Just as the intellect concerns itself with truth, so taste informs us of the beautiful, while the moral sense is regardful of duty. Of this latter, while conscience teaches the obligation and reason the expediency, taste contents herself with displaying the charms, waging war upon vice solely on the ground of her deformity, her disproportion, her animosity to the fitting, to the appropriate, to the harmonious, in a word, to beauty. An immortal instinct deep within the spirit of man is thus plainly a sense of the beautiful. This it is which administers to his delight in the manifold forms and sounds and odors and sentiments amid which he exists. And just as the lily is repeated in the lake, or the eyes of the amaryllis in the mirror, so is the mere oral or written repetition of these forms and sounds and colors and odors and sentiments a duplicate source of the light. But this mere repetition is not poetry. He who shall simply sing with however glowing enthusiasm, or with however vivid a truth of description of the sights and sounds and odors and colors and sentiments which greet him in common with all mankind, he, I say, has yet failed to prove his divine title. There is still something in the distance which he has been unable to attain. We have still a thirst unquenchable to allay which he has not shown us the crystal springs. This thirst belongs to the immortality of man. It is at once a consequence and an indication of his perennial existence. It is the desire of the moth for the star. It is no mere appreciation of the beauty before us, but a wild effort to reach the beauty above. Inspired by an ecstatic prescience to the glories beyond the grave, we struggle by multiform combinations among the things and thoughts of time to attain a portion of that loveliness whose very elements perhaps appertain to eternity alone. And thus, when by poetry or when by music the most entrancing of the poetic moods, we find ourselves melted into tears. We weep then, not as the Abate Gravina supposes, through excess of pleasure, but through a certain petulant, impatient sorrow at our inability to grasp now wholly here on earth at once and forever those divine and rapturous joys which through the poem or through the music we attain to but brief and indeterminate glimpses. The struggle to apprehend the supernal loveliness, this struggle on the part of souls fittingly constituted, has given to the world all that which it, the world, has ever been enabled at once to understand and to feel as poetic. 
the poetic sentiment of course may develop itself in various modes in painting in sculpture in architecture in the dance very especially in music and very peculiarly with a wide field in the composition of the landscape garden our present theme however has regard only to its manifestation in words and here let me speak briefly on the topic of rhythm contenting myself with the certainty that music in its various modes of meter rhythm and rhyme is of so vast a moment in poetry as never to be wisely rejected is so vitally important an adjunct that he is simply silly who declines its assistance i will now pause to maintain its absolute essentiality it is in music perhaps that the soul most nearly attains the great end for which when inspired by the poetic sentiment it struggles the creation of supernal beauty it may be indeed that here this sublime end is now and then attained in fact we are often made to feel with a shivering delight that from an earthly harp are stricken notes which cannot have been unfamiliar to the angels and thus there can be little doubt that in the union of poetry with music in its popular sense we shall find the widest field for the poetic development the old bards and men and singers had advantages which we do not possess and thomas moore singing his own songs was in the most legitimate manner perfecting them as poems to recapitulate then i would define in brief the poetry of words as the rhythmical creation of beauty its sole arbiter is taste with the intellect or with the conscience it has only collateral relations unless incidentally it has no concern whatever with duty or with truth a few words however in explanation that pleasure which is at once the most pure the most elevating and the most intense is derived i maintain from the contemplation of the beautiful in the contemplation of beauty we alone find it possible to attain that pleasurable elevation or excitement of the soul which we recognize as the poetic sentiment and which is so easily distinguished from truth which is the satisfaction of the reason or from passion which is the excitement of the heart i make beauty therefore using the word as inclusive of the sublime i make beauty the province of the poem simply because it is an obvious rule of art that effects should be made to spring directly as possible from their causes no one as yet having been weak enough to deny that peculiar elevation in question is at least most readily obtainable in the poem it by no means follows however that the incitements of passion or the precepts of duty or even the lessons of truth may not be introduced into a poem and with advantage for they may subserve incidentally in various ways the general purposes of the work but the true artist will always contrive to tone them down in proper subjection to that beauty which is the atmosphere and the real essence of the poem i cannot better introduce the few poems which i shall present for your consideration than by the citation of the poem to longfellow's waif 
The day is done, and the darkness falls from the wings of night, as a feather is wafted downward from an eagle in his flight. I see the lights of the village gleam through the rain and the mist, and a feeling of sadness comes o'er me that my soul cannot resist. A feeling of sadness and longing that is not akin to pain, and resembles sorrow only as the mist resembles the rain. Come, read to me some poem, some simple heartfelt lay, that shall soothe this restless feeling and banish the thoughts of day. Not from the grand old masters, not from the bards sublime, whose distant footsteps echo through the corridors of time. For like strains of martial music, their mighty thought suggests life's endless toil and endeavor, and tonight I long for rest. Read from some humbler poet, whose songs gush from his heart as showers from the clouds of summer or tears from the eyelids start who through long days of labor and nights devoid of ease still heard in his soul the music of wonderful melodies. Such songs have power to quiet the restless pulse of care and come like the benediction that follows after prayer. Then read from some treasured volume a poem of thy choice and lend to the rhyme of the poet the beauty of thy voice. And the night shall be filled with music, and the cares that infest the day shall fold their tents like Arabs and as silently steal away. With no great range of imagination, these lines have been justly admired for their delicacy of expression. Some of the images are very effective. Nothing can be better than the bard sublime whose distant footsteps echo down the corridors of time. The idea of the last quatrain is also very effective. The poem on the whole, however, is chiefly to be admired for the graceful insouciance of its meter, so well in accordance with the character of the sentiments, and especially for the ease of the general manner. This ease or naturalness in literary style has long been the fashion to regard as ease in appearance alone, as a point of really difficult attainment. But not so. A natural manner is difficult only to him who should never meddle with it, to the unnatural. It is but the result of writing with the understanding or with the instinct that the tone in composition should always be that which the mass of mankind would adopt and most perpetually vary, of course, with the occasion. The author who, after the fashion of the North American Review, should be upon all occasions merely quiet, must necessarily upon many occasions be simply silly or stupid, and has no more right to be considered easy or natural than a cockney exquisite or than the sleeping beauty in the waxworks. Among the minor poems of Bryant, none has so much impressed me as one which he entitles June. I quote only a portion of it. There through the long, long summer hours the golden light should lie, and thick young herbs and groups of flowers stand in their beauty by. The oriole should build and tell his love tale closely beside my cell. The idle butterfly should rest him there, and there be heard the housewife bee and humming bird. 
And what if cheerful shouts at noon come from the village scent, or songs of maids beneath the moon with fairy laughter blent? And what if in the evening light betrothed lovers walk in sight of my low monument? I would the lovely scene around might know no sadder sight or sound. I know, I know I should not see the season's glorious show, nor would its brightness shine for me, nor its wild music flow. But if around my place of sleep the friends I love should come to weep, they might not haste to go. Soft airs and song and the light and bloom should keep them lingering by my tomb. These to their softened hearts should bear the thoughts of what has been, and speak of one who cannot share the gladness of the scene, whose part in all the pomp that fills the circuit of the summer hills is that his grave is green, and deeply would their hearts rejoice to hear again his living voice. The rhythmical flow here is even voluptuous. Nothing could be more melodious. The poem has always affected me in a remarkable manner. The intense melancholy which seems to well up perforce to the surface of all the poet's cheerful sayings about his grave. We find thrillingness to the soul while there is the truest poetic elevation in the thrill. The impression left is one of a pleasurable sadness. And if in the remaining compositions which I shall introduce to you there be more or less of a similar tone always apparent, let me remind you that, how or why we know not, this certain taint of sadness is inseparably connected with all the higher manifestations of true beauty. It is, nevertheless, a feeling of sadness and longing that is not akin to pain and resembles sorrow only, as the mist resembles the rain. The taint of which I speak is clearly perceptible even in a poem so full of brilliancy and spirit as The Health of Edward Coate Pinckney. I fill this cup to one made up of loveliness alone. A woman of her gentle sex, the seeming paragon, to whom the better elements and kindly stars have given a form so fair that, like the air, tis less of earth than of heaven. Her every tone is music's own, like those of morning birds, and something more than melody dwells ever in her words. The coinage of her heart are they, and from her lips each flows, as one may see the burden be, forth issue from the rose. Affections are as thoughts to her, the measure of her hours. Her feelings have the flagrancy, the freshness of young flowers. And lovely passions changing off so fill her, she appears the image of themselves by turns, the idol of past years. Of her bright face on glance will trace a picture on the brain, and of her voice in echoing hearts a sound must long remain. But memory such as mine of her so very much endears, when death is nigh, my latest sigh will not be life's, but hers. I filled this cup to one made up of loveliness alone, a woman of her gentle sex, the seeming paragon, her health, and would on earth there stood some more of such a frame, that life might be all poetry and weariness a name. 
It was the misfortune of Mr. Pinckney to have been born too far south. Had he been a New Englander, it is probable that he would have been ranked as the first of American lyricists by that magnanimous cabal which has so long controlled the destinies of American letters in conducting the thing called the North American Review. The poem just cited is especially beautiful. But the poetic elevation which it induces, we must refer chiefly to our sympathy in the poet's enthusiasm. We pardon his hyperboles for the evident earnestness with which they are uttered. It was by no means my design, however, to expatiate upon the merits of what I should read you. These will necessarily speak for themselves. Boccalini, in his advertisements from Parnassus, tells us that Zoilus once presented Apollo a very caustic criticism upon a very admirable book, whereupon the god asked him for the beauties of the work. He replied that he only busied himself about the errors. On hearing this, Apollo, handing him a sack of unwinnowed wheat, bade him pick out all the chaff for his reward. Now this fable answers very well as a hit at the critics, but I am by no means sure that the god was in the right. I am by no means certain that the true limits of the critical duty are not grossly misunderstood. Excellence in a poem especially may be considered in the light of an axiom which need only be properly put to become self-evident. It is not excellence if it require to be demonstrated as such and thus to point out too particularly the merits of a work of art is to admit that they are not merits altogether. Among the melodies of Thomas Moore is one whose distinguished character as a poem proper seems to have been singularly left out of view. I allude to his lines beginning, Come rest in this bosom. The intense energy of their expression is not surpassed by anything in Byron. There are two of the lines in which a sentiment is conveyed that embodies the all in all of the divine passion of love, a sentiment which perhaps has found its echo in more and in more passionate human hearts than in any other single sentiment ever embodied in words. Come rest in this bosom, my own stricken dear. Though the herd have fled from thee, thy home is still here, here still in the smile that no cloud can o'ercast, and a heart and a hand all thy own to the last. Oh, what was love made for if tis not the same, through joy and through torment, through glory and shame? I know not, I ask not if guilt's in the heart, I but know that I love thee, whatever thou art. Thou hast called me thy angel in moments of bliss, and thy angel I'll be. Mid the horrors of this, through the furnace unshrinking thy steps to pursue, and shield thee and save thee, or perish there too. It has been the fashion of late to deny Moore imagination, while granting him fancy, a distinction originating with Coleridge, than whom no man more fully comprehended the great powers of Moore. The fact is that the fancy of this poet is so far predominates over all his other faculties and over the fancy of all other men as to have induced very naturally the idea that he is fanciful only. 
But never was there a greater mistake. Never was a grosser wrong done to the fame of a true poet. In the compass of the English language, I can call to mind no poem more profoundly, more weirdly imaginative in the best sense, than the lines commencing, I would I were by that dim lake, which are the composition of Thomas Moore. I regret that I am unable to remember them. One of the noblest, and speaking of fancy, one of the most singularly fanciful of modern poets, was Thomas Hood. His fair Inez had always for me an inexpressible charm. O oh, saw ye not fair Inez? She's gone into the west to dazzle when the sun is down, and rob the world of rest. She took our daylight with her, the smiles that we love best, with morning blushes on her cheek and pearls upon her breast. O oh, turn again, fair Inez, before the fall of night, for fear the moon should shine alone and stars unrivaled bright, and blessed will the lover be that walks beneath their light, and breathes the love against thy cheek I dare not even write. Would I had been, fair Inez, that gallant cavalier who rode so gaily by thy side and whispered thee so near. Were there no bonny dames at home, or no true lovers here, that he should cross the seas to win the dearest of the dear. I saw thee, lovely Inez, descend along the shore with bands of noble gentlemen and banners waved before, and gentle youth and maidens gay and snowy plumes they wore. It would have been a beauteous dream if it had been no more. Alas, alas, fair Inez, she went away with song, with music waiting on her steps, and shooting of the throng. But some were sad and felt no mirth, but only music's wrong in sounds that sang farewell, farewell, to her you've loved so long. Farewell, farewell, fair Inez. That vessel never bore so fair a lady on its deck, nor danced so light before. Alas, for pleasure on the sea and sorrow on the shore. The smile that blessed one lover's heart has broken many more. The Haunted House by the same author is one of the truest poems ever written, one of the truest, one of the most unexceptionable, one of the most thoroughly artistic, both in its theme and in its execution. It is, moreover, powerfully ideal, imaginative. I regret that its length renders it unsuitable for the purposes of this lecture. In place of it, permit me to offer the universally appreciated Bridge of Sighs. One more unfortunate, weary of breath, rashly importunate, gone to her death. Take her up tenderly, lift her with care, fashioned so slenderly, young and so fair. Look at her garments clinging like cerements, whilst the wave constantly drips from her clothing. Take her up instantly, loving but not loathing. Touch her not scornfully, Think of her mournfully, gently, and humanly, not in the stains of her. All that remains of her now is pure womanly. Make no deep scrutiny into her mutiny, rash and undutiful, past all dishonor. Death has left on her only the beautiful. Where the lamps quiver so far in the river, with many a light from window and casement, from garret to basement she stood with amazement houseless by night. The bleak wind of March made her tremble and shiver, but not the dark arch 
or the black flowing river, mad from life's history, glad to death's mystery, swift to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of the world. In she plunged boldly, no matter how coldly the rough river ran over the brink of it. Picture it, think of it, dissolute man. Live in it, drink of it, then if you can. Still for all slips of hers, one of Eve's family. Wipe those poor lips of hers, oozing so clamily, loop up her tresses, escaped from the comb. Her fair auburn tresses, whilst wonderment guesses, where was her home? Who was her father? Who was her mother? Had she a sister? Had she a brother? Or was there a dearer one still, a nearer one yet than all the other? Alas for the rarity of Christian charity under the sun. Oh, it was pitiful, near the whole city full, home she had come. Sisterly, brotherly, fatherly, motherly, feeling had changed. Love, by harsh evidence, thrown from its eminence, even God's providence seemed estranged. Take her up tenderly, lift her with care, fashioned so slenderly, young and so fair, ere her limbs frigidly stiffen too rigidly, decently, kindly, smooth and compose them, and her eyes close them, staring so blindly. Dreadfully staring through muddy impurity as when the daring last look of despairing fixed on futurity. Perishing gloomily, spurred by contumely, cold inhumanity, burning insanity into her rest, cross her hands humbly as if praying dumbly over her breast, owing her weakness, her evil behavior, and leaving with meekness her sins to her Savior. The vigor of this poem is no less remarkable than its pathos. The versification, although carrying the fanciful to the very verge of the fantastic, is nevertheless admirably adapted to the wild insanity which is the thesis of the poem. Among the minor poems of Lord Byron is one which has never received from the critics the praise which it undoubtedly deserves. Though the day of my destiny is over, and the star of my fate hath declined, thy soft heart refused to discover the faults which so many could find. Though my soul with my grief was acquainted, it shrunk not to share it with me, and the love which my spirit hath painted, it never hath found but in thee. Then when nature around me is smiling, the last smile which answers to mine, I do not believe it beguiling, because it reminds me of thine. And when winds are at war with the ocean, as the breasts I believed in with me, if their billows excite an emotion, it is that they bear me from thee. Though the rock of my last hope is shivered, and its fragments are sunk in the wave, though I feel that my soul is delivered, to pain it shall not be its slave. There is many a pang to pursue me. They may crush, but they shall not contend. They may torture, but they shall not subdue me. Tis of thee that I think, not of them. Though human, thou didst not deceive me. Though woman, thou didst not forsake. Though love, thou forbearest to grieve me. Though slandered, thou never couldst shake. Though trusted, thou didst not disclaim me. Though parted, it was not to fly. Though watchful, twas not to defame me. 
nor mute, that the world might belie. Yet I blame not the world, nor despise it, nor the war of the many with one. If my soul was not fitted to prize it, t'was folly not sooner to shun. And if dearly that error hath cost me, and more than I once could foresee, I have found that whatever is lost me, I could not deprive me of thee. From the wreck of the past which hath perished, thus much I at least may recall. It hath taught me that which I most cherished deserved to be dearest of all. In the desert a fountain is springing, in the wide waste there still is a tree, and a bird in the solitude singing which speaks to my spirit of thee. Although the rhythm here is one of the most difficult, and the versification could scarcely be improved, no nobler theme ever engaged the pen of a poet. It is a soul-elevating idea that no man can consider himself entitled to complain of fate, while in his adversity he still retains the unwavering love of a woman. From Alfred Lord Tennyson, although in perfect sincerity I regard him as the noblest poet that ever lived, I have left myself time to cite only a very brief specimen. I call him, and think him, the noblest of poets, not because of the impressions he produces are at all times the most profound, not because the poetical excitement which he induces is at all times the most intense, but because it is at all times the most ethereal, in other words, the most elevating and most pure. No poet is so little of the earth earthy. What I am about to read is from his last long poem, The Princess. Tears, idle tears, I know not what they mean. Tears from the depth of some divine despair rise in the heart and gather to the eyes. In looking on the happy autumn fields and thinking of the days that are no more, Fresh as the first beam glittering on a sail That brings our friends up from the underworld Sad as the last which reddens over me That sinks with all we love below the verge So sad, so fresh, the days that are no more Ah, sad and strange as in the dark summer dawns The earliest pipe of half-wakened birds The dying ears when unto dying eyes The casement slowly grows a glimmering square, so sad, so strange, the days that are no more. Dear as remembered kisses after death, and sweet as those by hopeless fancy feigned, on lips that are for others, deep as love, deep as first love, and wild with all regret, O death in life, the days that are no more. Thus, although in a very cursory and imperfect manner, I have endeavored to convey to you my conception of the poetic principle. It has been my purpose to suggest that while this principle itself is strictly and simply the human aspiration for supernal beauty, the manifestation of the principle is always found in an elevating excitement of the soul, quite independent of that passion which is the intoxication of the heart or that truth which is the satisfaction of the reason. 
For in regard to passion, alas, its tendency is to degrade rather than to elevate the soul. Love, on the contrary, love, the true divine Eros, the Uranian as distinguished from the Dionan and Venus, is unquestionably the purest and truest of all poetical themes. And in regard to truth, if to be sure through the attainment of a truth we are led to perceive harmony where none was apparent before, we experience at once the true poetical effect. But this effect is referable to the harmony alone, and not in the least degree to the truth which merely served to render the harmony manifest. We shall reach, however, more immediately a distinct conception of what the true poetry is by mere reference to a few of the simple elements which induce in the poet himself the poetical effect. He recognizes the ambrosia which nourishes his soul in the bright orbs that shine in the heaven, in the volutes of the flower, in the clustering of low shrubberies, in the waving of the grain fields, in the slanting of tall eastern trees, in the blue distance of mountains, in the grouping of clouds, in the twinkling of half-hidden brooks, in the gleaming of silver rivers, in the repose of sequestered lakes, in the star-mirroring depths of lonely wells. He perceives it in the songs of birds, in the harp of bullace, in the sighing of the night wind, in the repining voice of the forest, in the surf that complains to the shore, in the fresh breath of the woods, in the scent of the violet, in the voluptuous perfume of the hyacinth, in the suggestive odor that comes to him at eventide from far distant undiscovered islands, over dim oceans, illimitable and unexplored. He owns it in all noble thoughts, in all unworldly motives, in all holy impulses, in all chivalrous, generous, and self-sacrificing deeds. He feels it in the beauty of a woman, in the grace of her step, in the luster of her eye, in the melody of her voice, in her soft laughter, in her sigh, in the harmony of the rustling of her robes. He deeply feels in her winning endearments, in her burning enthusiasms, in her gentle charities, in her meek and devotional endurances. But above all, ah, far above all, he kneels to it. He worships it in the faith, in the purity, in the strength, in the altogether divine majesty of her love. Let me conclude by the recitation of yet another brief poem one very different in character from any that I have before quoted. It is by Motherwell, and is called The Song of the Cavalier. With our modern and altogether rational ideas of the absurdity and impiety of warfare, we are not precisely in that frame of mind best adapted to sympathize with the sentiments and thus to appreciate the real excellence of the poem. To do this fully, we must identify ourselves in fancy with the soul of the old cavalier. Then mount, then mount, brave gallants all, and don your helms amain. 
death's couriers, fame and honor call, no shrewish tear shall fill your eye when the sword hilts in your hand. Heart whole will part and no whit sigh for the fairest of the land. Let piping swain and craven white thus weep the pulling cry. Our business is like men to fight. End of section 11. Hey everyone, thank you for helping make January a tremendous, wonderful, gigantic month at Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Hey, we've got some Ken Height talking about Poe, we've got Ken Height and Adam Scott Glancy talking about Ligor and the Chocho coming up. So check that out, that's going on, uh, should be this week, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, so listen for this audio feed to uh to check that out and remember rate review and subscribe give us five stars wherever you listen let people know about it review us on facebook review us on instagram hey we are officially now on spotify so if you don't like listening to this on your computer you don't like listening to this on your phone and you just want to listen to it through like a speaker or something like that uh, you know however you use spotify if you're like, man, I wish they were on Spotify. I'd listen to them more often or save it or whatever. And now you can. We're on Spotify. We're also everywhere that you listen to podcasts. So thank you so much for making January gigantic. And we look forward to seeing you in March with the cool stuff. And remember, check the show notes for links and schedules and find out everything that's going on with Badger's Drift Studios, our friends over at Sweat Drenched Press, the gang over at Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, and of course me, D.B. Spitzer. Hey, check out my Instagram, PGTTCM. All right, bye. <laughs>